If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. I've always been very interested in the convergence of technology and storytelling. Anything that I'm directing, anything that I'm putting in the lion's share of the work, I am going to push technology as far as I can. Pioneering filmmaker Deepak Chetty sees immersive technology as much more than a means of entertainment. While Deepak is a cinematographer, visual effects artist, director, photographer, and writer, he's also an educator, working as assistant professor of practice at the University of Texas, Austin. Among his past projects is Mars and Interactive Journey, a VR experience for the Washington Post on which he worked as creative producer. And his current professional commitments include working as director of VR and VFX at Austin-based creative production company Revelator. In 2016, Deepak's graduate thesis sci-fi film Hard Reset won both a Best 3D Short Live Action Award from the Advanced Imaging Society and a Best Director Award from ITV Fest. But best of all, as an educator, Deepak says that there are free resources available right now to anyone who'd like to find out more about using immersive technology to tell a story and share information. Deepak, I'd love to know where your creative journey started. What do you remember very best about your growing up years in Oklahoma that led you to become the filmmaker and content creator you are today? Sure, Dot. Well, you know, Growing up in Oklahoma, I, I did not have too much to do other than sit around and watch movies and read books. I was a little bit of an outdoors kid. I was a Boy Scout growing up, so you know I used to go camping and stuff like that. But outside of that, my interests really existed within the arts and specifically film. So I got started at a really early age watching movies that I probably should not have been allowed to watch. But uh, all these things sort of stoked my imagination. And I was also a pretty voracious reader at a pretty young age. So storytelling has always been a very large part of my DNA, just sort of as an individual. And, and as I grew and I got into high school, uh, I started deciding what I wanted to do with my life. It just became the sort of foregone conclusion that I would end up in some realm, in some way telling stories. And that sort of led me to where I am today. Which includes winning some pretty prestigious awards, if you don't mind me bragging on your little Oh, thank you. (laughs) For creating the University of Texas' first 3D student film, Hard Reset, which, by the way, I recommend anybody see that gets a chance to. How'd you first begin to incorporate the immersive and interactive elements into your work as a filmmaker? Sure, yeah. So I've always been very interested in the convergence of technology and storytelling. When I was an undergraduate, at Pratt Institute from 2003 to 2007, I, I always, even back then, you know, VFX was not democratized in the same way, visual effects, CGI, stuff like that, that, as it is now. I tried to, you know, utilize technology and CGI and VFX on like the no budget, low budget level in every single one of my projects. So I, for the most part, was self-taught in these methods. And after graduating, I worked in the industry for a little bit. I was doing a lot of motion graphics for documentaries, visual effects, really mundane stuff, nothing flashy. And uh, I also was doing a lot of camera work. That was my, in terms of filmmaking, my initial passions were camera work and visual effects. And, you know, after a certain point, I 
started realizing that I was in New York at the time, I started realizing that I wasn't making my own stuff and I wasn't really pushing the boundaries for what I wanted to do as a storyteller. Specifically, though, I wasn't telling my own stories. So that led me actually to Austin. I got into the master's program at UT Austin at the radio and television film school here. And my goal was, you know, every single project that I make, anything that I'm directing, anything that I'm putting in the lion's share of the work, I am going to push technology as far as I can in this setting, you know, given the resources and also the limitations that I had. And working in immersive and specifically stereoscopic 3D was born through that sort of self-challenge. Hard Reset's a sci-fi action movie, like you said, is from what we understand is the first natively shot, meaning we shot it with two cameras, stereoscopic master's thesis narrative film. And it was out of the RTF school's 3D program that that was allowed to happen. And what it forced me to do was develop my own workflows for visual effects in stereoscopic because I was sort of a a one-person team putting all that stuff together. The movie has a couple hundred CGI or VFX shots over its running time, which is almost 40 minutes long. So developing that workflow was sort of just jumping into the deep end. We're, We're working really hard to getting the 3D version actually available for viewing. But right now, if you check out the movie on Dust, it's, it's only the 2D version, which is kind of sad to me just because I spent so much time making it 3D. But that really was the spark that started me off into the world of immersive. Because when I started thinking about stereoscopic 3D and how much that affected the story that I was telling, that sort of coincided. It was around the same time that the Oculus dev kit had just come out, the first version, the dev kit. And what I was able to do is I actually got one from some very kind person in town. We met, and you know, we did a local trade. And I started working with that. And I actually ended up doing a graduate research project at UT utilizing the Oculus dev kit. And I had some undergrads working with me and a faculty sponsor. And we created an, a very lo-fi, but albeit, you know, fully interactive narrative that had a sort of a linear path, but really opened my eyes to this idea of interactive and immersive storytelling. And that was, that was it. That was around 2014, 2015 was when I was working on that project. And ever since I've pretty much been firmly rooted in the XR world, whether it be for interactive content creation or even filmmaking, because a lot of what I do now is actually considered virtual production work. And in fact, anybody listening right now who's in education, as you are yourself, Mm -hmm. is to know that you did the Mars Immersive Project with the Washington Post, which allows people to actually interact and determine where they're going to be going. What if somebody listening wants to get started doing something immersive with content? Let's say that person is a teacher. Where do they even start? Yeah. You know, for me, you know, because a lot of these things up until a couple of years ago, you you would kind of have to be self-taught if you weren't literally studying this in a school as part of a degree program or a vocational program. A lot of people like me are self-taught. So what what I would recommend is finding the platform that you want to use. So I'm working in game engines. You know, the two most popular game engines are Unreal Engine and Unity. I decided that I was going to use Unreal Engine because I'm first and foremost a creative filmmaker, a content creator. I'm not a programmer. Unreal abstracts the programming process. So you're still programming, but it's visual 
programming. It's node-based programming. So that gave me the confidence that I would be able to learn the engine and sort of understand the ins and outs without having to literally learn syntax like a, a brand new language like C++ or something. But after I made that decision, like, you know, this is the route I'm going to pursue. I'm going to utilize Unreal Engine. I just started immersing myself in as much material as I could, even if it had nothing to do with my end goals in terms of being a a filmmaker or a content creator in the engine. I still wanted to know the engine inside and out. Like I wanted to know every single aspect of it. It's very common, you know, to be considered sort of a generalist if you're not really from the background, but you sort of understand sort of surface level, like all the major concepts. And I think for educators especially, and this is coming, you know, I'm also an academic. I've been teaching for the last five years at UT. And I I teach this software to people who are interested in content creation, but also interested in like integrating it into other things outside of entertainment. Namely, what I've seen in the past is not just fine art, but education. So my suggestion would be if you're interested in this sort of technology, if you're interested in interactive or XR or, you know, the virtual production side of things, if you're a filmmaker, the easiest thing to do right now is just to jump headfirst because there are so many resources out there. And quite frankly, you know, there's a huge difference between now and 10, you know, five years ago, even 10 years ago, because almost all this stuff, all this information is out there for free too. And in the case of Unreal Engine, the application itself is also free. Wow, what a great resource. You're teaching students, but what are you most excited about learning as the best educators always seem to do, learning more from their students than they're actually teaching? Oh, absolutely. Part of the reason I love using interactive en- like game engines is because I, I call them sandbox programs. And that means there's a million ways to do anything, right? So you can have an objective. Like for instance, last week in my class, I'm teaching the students just base level interactivity. We're creating very simple interactive experiences using old school platformers as our sort of inspiration. So we came up with a health system and a score system. And I sort of show them using the nodes, like, you know, programmatically, how we create the variables, how we set up the programming and how the node, the logic flows from one node to the other to give us our result or give us what we want. Now, what's great about this process is that every now and then a student will be like, well, why don't we do it this way? Because, you know, we could use these nodes instead, or, you know, we could change the variables, or we could reroute the logic in this way to make this cleaner or faster, or it gives us more options. And I absolutely love that because there's so many different ways to do the same thing that your knowledge, if you keep up to date with the software, you surround yourself with your peers or, you know, even people you're teaching, you might learn something because you all might reach the same conclusion, but with a different path or a different journey. And I can definitely tell you, like over the years, I have learned how to be so much more efficient through my students just because they found faster ways of doing things, which, you know, when you think about it, the end result is the same, but it's really nice to sort of understand that there's different recipes, if you will, to reach the same conclusion. And I think that's a mindset that you can utilize in these programs because it'll actually help you learn the program as a whole even better if you're utilizing different paths to reach the same endpoint. You mentioned workflow, and I'd like to know more about that. But first, I'm going to ask you to indulge me with a story, if you don't mind that. I would love to have you take me back in your imagination 
to the set of Hard Reset and tell me what stands out most in your mind from the experience of making that groundbreaking film. Sure. Well, you know, I really appreciate the kind words for it. You know, we're very proud, the team that put that movie together, we're really proud of it. And I think the thing that I think about the most for that film is, you know, when you watch it, I've since gone on, you know, professionally after graduating with the master's degree, I've done some commercial directing, I've worked on other projects, worked on other shorts and features. That film itself, that 40-minute film, costs less than 30-second commercials that I've worked on. And, you know, it's a testament because it's with a few very specific exceptions, including the 3D technicians that we were lucky to have as a part of UT3D's connection with the industry in Hollywood. Almost the entire crew was students, with very few exceptions, whether they were grad students or undergrads. And, you know, to look back and see sort of what we accomplished, you know, the average age range of somebody on that set was probably like 24 or 23. I am very proud of what we did. Of course, as a filmmaker and a creator, when you look back, I mean, I feel like most of us feel this way. There's a million things I'd want to change. You know, part of me is just like, oh man, if you had spent as much time on the script as you did the VFX and post-production, you know, maybe it could have been even better or you know what I mean? But I look back on it now and, you know, I have no regrets, absolutely no regrets. And the thing that fills me with the most pride are those things. We did a lot for very little. And the crew, the people that, you know, who poured so much time and effort into the project, you know, we all, I really, truly believe we pulled off something special just because we all believed in it. We didn't have, you know, as much experience as, you know, the average crew. We were putting a lot of responsibility on, you know, very young people to get this thing done. And, and it, you know, I feel like, and I, I feel like the responses prove that to a degree, people are connecting with this material and it works. And I think that's the ultimate, that's what makes us happy when we look back on it. Because yeah, it's been, you know, over five years since we shot it, it's been released, it's been distributed, and now it's out there in the wild. We're nearing across all platforms, almost a million views for just, you know, a master's thesis. And it's more than we could have ever asked for. You know, I think when we look back on it, though, those are the things that make me happy. It's the fact that we reached people and, you know, we put in so much time and energy into it and it, and it seems like it's being appreciated. We've got a sort of Romeo and Juliet situation here. It's very high tech. It's very fun. Mm-hmm. And it's a twist. And I won't ruin it by giving a spoiler. What I will ask, though, is, mm-hmm. is there one minute you can tell me about that I'd experience in 3D that I would experience differently than I did seeing it on my desktop last evening? Yeah. You know, one of the things that really surprised me is going in in pre-production, we were, because we planned it, you know, to be shot in 3D. So we're thinking about all the, sh- literally the framing, how things would change. A lot of times I, in my head, I, w- I was really thinking about the, the cityscapes or the VFX shots, what we consider like the fully CG elements where it's just like a landscape or, you know, the city with the, the flying cars and the vehicles and, you know, the fog and the haze, you know, very Blade Runner reminiscent and stuff like that. But what really stood out to me after once the second day of film, probably the second or third day of filming, because I was able to monitor the takes in 3D, like I could actually see it in 3D as we were filming is I noticed the close-ups, actually, like the performance in the close-ups was what really transported you, like, into the world. And once we edited it, I think it became even more evident. So while the visual effects and the world building and all the sci-fi elements definitely were augmented by, you know, existing in 3D, there's very few gimmicky shots in the movie where stuff's, like, coming out of the frame right at you. I couldn't help myself 
we couldn't help ourselves a couple times, but it was all pretty diegetic. Like it's during the action scenes and stuff. But what we noticed though, was, you know, the strength of the 3d, I think is it in the extreme close-ups or, you know, the medium shots where we're really looking into somebody's eyes or looking into somebody's face, there's a different sort of feeling you get. And, you know, this has been demonstrated in non-genre 3d films that have existed, you know, like Pina, that experimental dance film, the Wim Wenders, you know, there's a human element that exists that triggers a different part of the brain. I feel like when you see something with depth perception, like you actually get the parallax and you see the roundness of the face. There's something about the the light shining in the eyes when you have an eye light. And, you know, even if the character is looking right off screen or, you know, maybe like in our film where at a certain point, it almost is like they break the fourth wall there's something that just seems a little bit more intimate about it. And that's the thing that surprised me the most with the 3D in this film. I can't wait to hear when this comes out in 3D and we can actually experience it. By the way, where can people get updates on that? So the updates, can, you can definitely get updates on my website. So the, the goal right now is we, we actually have the 3D version converted to be able to be viewed in VR headsets because that's, that's the ideal distribution platform for the 3D version of the film because not many people in the States have 3D TVs anymore. I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure that they still even manufacture them anymore here. So VR headset delivery, we're thinking about making an app or trying to get it on a gallery or you know a VOD service that'll actually have it on demand. But the easiest thing, and this is the route I think we're going to pursue is I might just make a cool little, you know, virtual movie theater environment, sort of thematic, maybe some sort of like futuristic sci-fi apartment, like maybe the one of the apartments in the film. And that can be the setting in which you watch the 3D movie. So we'll see. But yeah, you can definitely check out any sort of update on the film will be posted on my website, deepakchetty.com. Deepakchetty.com. That'll keep us posted here. Yeah. You mentioned a technology and a technique before in an email. I honestly had not heard of before. You talked about real-time rendering. First of all, can you tell me what this is? And then let's take a look at how that serves you as a filmmaker. Sure. So real-time rendering, it's not necessarily new, but what I would say is it's democratized. So the, the cost of this technology and this methodology has dropped sharply. So what it essentially means is in the past, when we would develop VFX or CGI, especially on the lower end, you know, if it's a person at a single computer like me, usually, like I'm not working at a render farm, I don't have network renders or cloud renders going on, you know, professionally maybe, but on my own personal work, I'm just on my single machine in my office. What would happen is anytime I would do very complicated visual effects or, you know, have any sort of compositing with multiple layers or do any sort of advanced 3D modeling or texturing, and I need to actually, you know, create my final frame, right, the frame that's ready for delivery, I would have to go through a process where it's rendered process by process, layer by layer. And that is never actually real time, what we consider real time, which means it is a delayed process. So for example, Hard reset is 40 minutes long, approximately. And the 3D version of that movie, so essentially we're rendering a version of the movie for each eye, because there's subtle differences that create the depth, was took over six weeks to render total. That's, that's six weeks of computer time. So that's six weeks, 24 hours a day. That's the approximate calculation I had after calculating all the renders. Now, if I had made hard reset now, just, you know, a difference of three, four years in terms of the time that I, you know, from when I did my last renders until now, and I set up the entire process to render real time, 
there might have been more work going into the back end where I'm like creating the shots. But essentially what real-time rendering means is when I had when I have my visual effects ready, you know, when I have everything put in and composited, when I render it out, it's going at 24 frames per second. It's not one frame every five minutes or 10 minutes. It's literally going at the speed in which, you know, if I have the correct hardware and I'm, I've set it up properly, I can literally create a live export of my visual effects, if you will. So that's the main difference is it's a huge, huge, and, and the way that I'm talking about it as a filmmaking tool for live visual effects, it's a, it's a huge advantage because there's no longer the idea that you're waiting or that you're using proxies as you're working. You can actually start iterating creatively and looking at potentially your final frame when you're just, when in the past we would just be doing drafts and we would just be prepping. So it's, it allows for a much more rapid creative iteration. And what that also does too, which, which I love is, you know, if we start utilizing some of these elements, so now you might've heard of course of that, the Star Wars show, The Mandalorian, where they're using real-time rendering to put in all their backgrounds live as they film not using a green screen, but using a massive LED wall. So all these fantastical environments, the, you know, the backwater planets, the desert planets, the snow-covered planet behind the main characters is not green screen anymore. It's an actual live rendered image being baked into the you know, native camera shot that's happening. What's cool about that, what's so awesome about that, even as how it scales down even to the educational level or the academic level, is all of a sudden the collaboration that normally would take place after the take is shot, after, you know, after the shooting period is done, after principle of photography is over, you know, the VFX would happen. It's usually a lot of people sitting at a computer. Of course, you'll have the VFX supervisor and other people on set, but the real magic would happen after the fact. You know, so the actors are gone. The cinematographer usually is gone unless they're advising or sitting in. You know, the gaffer is definitely not there. The lighting person, you know, they're all gone. And it's really just happening in a studio, probably, you know, some corner of California or Europe or Canada or Asia. But now with real time, the director, the actors, the camera person, the gaffer, any aspect, the production designer, the art director, the set decorator, you know, the art department, they can all collaborate at once because what you see is what you're going to get. So the idea that the visual effects exist immediately, even if they're going to be tweaked later, because of course there'll always be subtle changes or maybe even large changes. The fact that they can exist in the moment really truly allows for the VFX process to be collaborative in ways that it never has been before. I'm glad you said tweaked later. So I was wondering about editing when you do something like that. It sounds like that's entirely possible. If I've understood you correctly, we're talking about, well, an audio would be a live mix where you mix down, but you're mixing as it happens. Is that correct? So, yes. So there's, there's definitely changes that can be made. At a certain point, though, you know, if, if you're committing stuff to the image, you know, it's baked in, right? But that doesn't mean you can't go in and, like, add something or maybe paint something out or tweak something. I think a lot of people utilizing this technology still do another pass where they sweeten the image. So it's not like they're just taking the raw footage and saying, okay, we're calling it a day. That's it. But... In general, what's cool about this technology when you're utilizing it at these very high budget levels is that you can get very, very close to what the final frame is. Now, how does this scale, though, for education? Well, you know, the way that we utilize it 
at UT where I'm teaching is I actually use the real-time aspect to almost create a virtual studio approach where the cool thing about this real-time environment is the idea that a lot of these properties too are physically accurate. And by physically accurate, I mean they are representative of the exact same properties and practical physical filmmaking. So if I have a physical camera that I'm holding, let's say it's you know some sort of Sony cinema camera or a RED or an Ari Alexa, if I get the sensor size measurements off that camera, so the image plane, and I plug that in to the engine, and then I also you know get my focal length, you know the lens that I'm using, what its minimum and maximum f-stop is, you know its minimal focus distance. I can put all these values inside of the virtual world, and I can actually train filmmakers to understand things like field of view, to understand framing, to understand composition without them ever leaving their computer. So they can essentially practice at setting up shots, deciding what lighting looks like, and they don't have to leave their computer. And I don't want to say that that replaces doing it in person, of course, but you know, especially it's very timely because right now with COVID, you know, we can't, at least, at, you know, in our institution, we're not just letting people jump into the sound stages and check out equipment and, you know, do tests or do shoots. So this has proven to be a tool that's very valuable. Wow. You more or less answered what I was wondering about workflow, but what would you add to that for teachers who are wondering about, well, I'm one person, how do I do all this stuff? Sure. I think, you know, in general, learning the engine, in this case, for the physically accurate stuff, it would be Unreal Engine. Learning Unreal is not that difficult. I'll put this out there as sort of a challenge. I have taught people as young as 12 years old to as old as in their 70s, Unreal Engine, with, who have zero background, like zero background in interactive media creation. And a lot of them will be like, oh, I thought this was just used for games. Like, I thought this was just a tool to make interactive. I didn't realize that this was a tool for, you know, filmmaking or fine art. Like, you know, because you don't just have to do motion picture. You can do still image renders. You can do all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, I have yet to meet somebody who has spent more than a week with the software, you know, actually trying, challenging themselves, who hasn't picked it up and who hasn't been successful and utilizing it. You know, that doesn't mean they've become an expert, but they know the interface, they understand what it can do. And to whatever degree that they feel comfortable, they've told me that they've been able to fulfill some goals. Using it as an educator too, I think is really valuable, especially when working with younger students, because they're already so tied into this idea of interactive and especially interactive learning because they're doing so much stuff online. And what I found is, you know, a lot of core creative principles that I teach that are just workflow based. They're not necessarily around any sort of narrative or storytelling theory or, you know, anything to do with agency or, you know, anything traditionally that we think of when we talk about content creation and a narrative. But even simple things like workflow, I've found are like, you know, discipline for organization or, you know, creating pipelines, you know, which ties back into workflow have been a lot easier to explain in this sort of interactive realm where the cause and effect is immediate. We're not waiting for renders. We see how things work. We understand logic. And that's something that I've found to be really valuable because I teach all sorts of stuff using this technology. It's not just film. It's fiction-based stuff. It's nonfiction-based stuff. It sort of runs the gamut. But at the end of the day, it all goes back to the software. 
So, you know, and that's something to me that's interesting because game engines have been around for a really long time. You know, it's, and I don't want to say it's only recently they've been starting to be used for films. They've been, people have been doing this for a bit. It's, I think the key is it's become more available and democratized. So now there's really not an excuse because in the past for some of these programs, you would be paying thousands of dollars a year just to get a license. And now, you know, it's either free or it's much, much, much more affordable. We talked about what you're going to be doing with Hard Reset, but what are the future creative projects about which you're most excited? What are you doing next? So next up, actually concerning Hard Reset, Hard Reset has been optioned as a feature film. So we're in the process of trans, you know, transposing that story into a larger format, which of course would include a bigger budget. The scope and scale of the story would be the same. It's not a literal remake. I can tell you that much. It's not a beat-for-beat remake. It takes the same characters and takes relatively the same scenario, and it just sort of expands upon it. So we're very excited about that, me and the team. We're working on that very, very, like, we're working very hard to make sure that our script is the best it can be before we head out to, you know, start pitching it wholesale. Also, personally, I'm still hard at work developing new education-based workflows for virtual production. That's sort of become the overriding non-creative passion of mine, meaning like outside of storytelling, that's what I'm most focused on. And I'm hoping to have some announcements about updates in that sector too later on this year with new workflows and also new courses that I'll be teaching that will be available online. Which I hope people can reference by going to deepakchetty.com. Yep, absolutely. Perfect. Finally, Deepak, if people could only get one thing from you, about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really love to have them take away from what you're doing? That's a great question, Dot. And I think in terms of a takeaway about innovation and technology, especially as it pertains to storytelling, is I often feel when I talk to people, especially you know people that I've learned from, so the generation that is a little bit older than me, and these are a lot of people in charge right now, whether it's academic or it's in the professional world, there's every now and then there's a lot of hesitance. And I'm talking more on the traditional filmmaking side. There's a hesitance to embrace new technology because there's this fear that there's this idea that, you know, the next wave of filmmakers will sort of wipe out what's come before and technology will, you know, technology will replace something. My overriding principle and what I like to get across to people, whether it's visual effects, whether it's, you know, 3D, whether it's immersive, whether it's virtual production, It's like, these are all just additional tools in the toolkit of a content creator. They're not meant to replace or redefine storytelling. One thing that really bothers me is when a new piece of technology comes out and somebody says like, this is the future of cinema or like, this is the future of filmmaking. It's like, I mean, I don't think filmmaking is fundamentally going to change, maybe outside of our lifetimes, but I, I really don't see it changing that much in terms of its core ideals and the core techniques. But I think what we can take from innovation and technology is that these are new ways of supplementing how we do things and not replacing. And that's the key. And I think if if people sort of look at it that way, these technologies can be embraced a little bit more frequently opposed to being sort of looked at and maybe feared even in some cases, because they sort of threaten 
you know, the past. I, I really think that we, yeah, we look at these technologies as things that are not meant to replace, but to supplement, to encourage, you know, new ways of thinking. But these new ways, once again, they exist. The backbone is still the tradition and the standard that's been cultivated, you know, decades. And I mean, even centuries, if we think about what has influenced the moving image itself. Deepak, thank you for your time today. No, no problem. You and I have been listening to award-winning filmmaker and UT Austin assistant professor Deepak Chetty. As Deepak mentioned, his science fiction thriller Hard Reset is currently available in 3D for VR headsets. For updates on both the film and his forthcoming online courses and other educational content, check out his website, deepakchetty.com. And while you're there, don't forget to get a look at his photography and his other immersive work, including the VR project Mars and Interactive Journey. That's deepakchetty.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.